Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is David Kubler from Project A. David is based over in Berlin. He's an obsessive nerd when it comes to RevOps, so we're going to be digging deep. Um, we're going to be looking at why administrators are a cost center instead of a profit center. We're going to look at how RevOps should be focused on the revenue and not on administration, that they need to step back and see the bigger picture and focus on metrics that matter. One of the frustrations I see is over the last seven years, we've had, what, 20, 25,000 vendors in this space in RevOps, MarTech, sales enablement platforms, and so on. And average quota attainment has halved. Um, so on that note, David, would you just give us a, your take on why that might have happened? So I, I, like we talked the, the first time, I and mean, that's a, it's a hard question to answer. But I think that, and I think there's so many things play into that that half. Like, I mean, so many things. It could be, at some point, we have to even like think about how Corona affected maybe the closing rate of certain deals because of people suddenly had to go from being able to go on site to then, you know, having to do close people on Zoom calls. But overall, I would say that we shouldn't reach out and blame the technology or the way that sales has developed because I think the way from, from where we went to what sales used to be to where we are now, it is a positive development. I think many companies are stuck in the past and haven't gotten onto the train yet of how modern sales can impact the, the, that metric. Well, what's really interesting about this is that the technology is brilliant. Often it's beautifully engineered, it's very well thought through, but it's really badly bought. It's terribly sold and it's awfully implemented. And then you end up creating this level of complexity. Well, one of uh, my clients uh, ended up building a dashboard which connected everything, uh, and they have a single view of all of their technology. And now they save two and a half hours a day per rep. Yeah. I mean, wow. So their pipeline has miraculously increased. How did well, that happen? <laughs> so what I want to understand is why is it that people buy technology and then do such a terrible job of making sure that it's fit for purpose, that it's integrated and it's aligned, and that there's one view so that sales can actually operate instead of spending most of their time being technicians and admin. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, I think that there's, there's a few layers to this, but the one that I've seen, or the one that definitely has an impact that, that that's noticeable is how it's, it's a black box. For many of the, the executives that end up saying, yes, let's get this one versus another uh, tool, another vendor, they have no idea what actually happens inside of the tool. They just see the numbers that in the end come out and, and are visualized in some sort of dashboard. What actually goes into integrating such a tool, what goes into synchronizing between other you know, stacks, what, um, what kind of processes are followed by reps that work on that system or, or even you know, customer success or something, they don't know about that. And so they don't care about it. And so they don't add it to the calculation of how am I going to bring this thing to operate? All they see is some fancy features in the demo. Then they see price structures from different vendors and they say, yeah, okay, I'll take that one. But then that's where they go out. That's where they are. I'm done here now. That's one main one. And then the other one is that they are the answer to many, many times the answer to a certain problem in the commercial sector uh, of a company will be, okay, you know what, let's just get Salesforce, or let's just get HubSpot, or let's just get the Microsoft CRM. Nobody actually thinks about 
you know, like the, 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 nobody thinks about like, what, what is this going to mean for my process and how it's going to feel and in living inside that system? And how am I going to do, does it necessarily have to be something such so big? Can't I go best of breed and pick three or four things and add it together? We're definitely starting to follow these trend lines of, you know, this guy built something with just HubSpot. I'll just do it like that too. And no shame on HubSpot, no shame on Salesforce or whatsoever. But the answer, it's, it's not as simple as that. And right now, it, many people still think it is. Right. I mean, I think it's probably unfair that they don't think about those things, but I don't think they think deeply enough about the negative unintended consequences of adding another piece of technology that may or may not integrate, or um, you may not have thought through the effect on your process. And when you're buying this stuff, what disappoints me is the lack of coverage that most salespeople engineer when they're selling it, because typically... Even in enterprise deals, they speak to what between one and two people. And you can't possibly have spoken to the poor buggers who are going to have to live with the consequences, <laughs> the yeah. people who are going to have to administer it, who are yeah. going to have to maintain it and fix it when it breaks, and the people who are going to be impacted downstream by the effects. And none of that seems to play any part in the process because the salespeople are under so much pressure to sell that they're tran totally transactional and focused on making this quarter's quota. Totally agreed. What I saw recently from a few of our ventures also, which I think is brilliant, is this very, very consultative style of sales, where they basically come in, they, most of these people are like an, an expert in, in, in what they, they, the software that they sell into. So in this, in this um, example, it actually is revenue operations. And so uh, he'll come and he'll be like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm an expert in revenue operations. I'd love to consult your company a little bit uh, on how these processes work. They start to sit together. They're like, hey, you know what? I, I noticing your data is absolutely not streamlined in terms of looking at your cash flow at the point where you input, let's say, into marketing, and then where you output, let's say, you know, in, in the finance um, department, that doesn't doesn't seem right. Let's let's streamline this, and then suddenly start streamlining it, and then he's like, all right, you know what? By the way, now that we've streamlined your data, I have a tool here where you can put all these data points in, and then we can start monitoring uh, how well uh, you are on track of certain goals that you set inside the platform. Isn't that a cool idea? Well, yeah, that's a cool idea. And, and at that point, the, the, the executive understands why it's a cool idea because they just spent the last like two months paying this guy like two, three K every few days. So that he comes in and streams the data for you. And now they're like, okay, great. My data is streamlined. I paid an X amount of money for it. And now this guy's telling me he's going to put a tool over it that will do this for me once he leaves. Great. I do want to buy that. That's one way that I've seen lately that's positively... Uh, put a spin on these kind of sale, uh, sell, uh, selling method, methods, but the sales cycle, obviously you have to imagine becomes longer. What's fun though, is that you have some revenue coming in as a, you know, as a consultant fee, basically. Okay. So that you're effectively selling a monkey's paw to get them uh, into their wallet and uh, into the habit of buying. And whilst you're getting paid, you're learning how to help them solve their problem and co-developing it with them. And you're already inside the company, which is also great, right? So you're already inside the company. You get to know these people. You're working with them to streamline certain data sets or understanding where certain you know, uh, blockers are. So you, 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 say, are you say you're getting to know these people. But what, what I would really love to understand is how we can use this technology in partnership with the human beings to make them focus on the stuff that actually matters, which is the relationship, not the transaction. The transaction is a byproduct. It's a lagging indicator of the work that you did up front. Now, mm -hmm. I was on a call earlier today with a salesperson 
who was very transactional. And when I was digging into the process of a recent customer who flipped, it was painfully obvious that he had no idea why any of his customers buy from him. He thinks it's because of their brand, which it probably is, because they're a big brand and they're one of the biggest in the world. So they're safe. And so if people have a bad experience, they have more range than others, then they'll buy, but not because of how he sold. It's in spite of it. And what I'd love to know is how RevOps really should be focused on helping those people develop great relationship skills and build real relationships so that they understand what the data is telling them. But I think then we're getting into, I mean, that this is for me what, what I actually think about sales, uh, sales enablement. I noticed quite a lot of different definitions for it. Also in, my, in, in real life for me, like the moment where it clicked for me, this is this, like when I was sitting in this meeting, I was like, wow, I'm currently doing sales enablement is um, when, when, when you teach the executioners why the process is important and how it makes them better. And I think there, 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 so there's, there's a few things that everybody can do. One is that, and I just don't understand why this doesn't happen is why do you not sit your sales ops people and your like reps together once a week and let them talk about like how they feel in that system. I feel like this is the most, like, this is the probably the most basic step that, that you can do. And it's free. It's absolutely free. And then the next one would be the kind of how you determine prioritization and implementation into the system. Because most of the time, the number one thing is not the user experience for um, the reps. Think about how crazy it is that product teams will spend hours, you know, doing interviews with users and having insane and amazing um, uh, frameworks on how to like answer certain questions and what question, like what answer to a question will determine how the user uses the, the platform. How many, you know, hundreds of tools we have. That, uh, that monitor um, user data inside of a product so that to then understand maybe like how can we t- tweet, how should the button press be yellow or red or should the, the pop-up come at second 10 or at, um, at second 20? But we don't even come close to doing that for our own users who are driving the revenue on which the entire company sits on. Well, it, it strikes me that there's an awful lack of communication Because RevOps should be a function of business. Sales enablement should be a business function. It shouldn't be um, a bad alternative to crap training, uh, which is what it seems to turn into in most organizations. It shouldn't be product training because no one buys your product anyway. They buy the outcome and they rent it for as long as it delivers the result. So what flabbergasts me is you've got, all these brilliant minds, you've got these fantastic tools and systems. And the thing that seems to get in the way is the human being. Isn't it always gets in the way? Well, yeah, but it it normally is. I mean, 80% of the problems I've ever come across, (laughs) even the mechanical ones have started with some human idiot, um, often me. So what, what I'm struggling to understand is how can we make RevOps more focused on the stuff that actually delivers the outcome, which is the human being. I mean, the process is fantastic and having automation and all of that is great. But unless you're dealing with a very low ticket transactional item, chances are, unless there is human to human interaction where that person can have conversation and have their questions answered, they become a very high churn risk. And companies that don't have a human interaction before the customer purchases 
Mm -hmm. uh, often have churn rates in the region of 40%. It means every two years, you're practically replacing your entire customer base. That's very expensive and very energy inefficient. So how, how do we get RevOps to be more humane and enable that side of things? So this is actually, um, yeah, I had quite a shock moment a few weeks ago. And my boss told me many times to calm down about it, but I, I, I can't. <laughs> Where um, the, I was reading this, this LinkedIn article and, and it was um, actually from one of the, the HubSpot, I think, founders or one of the HubSpot uh, yeah, uh, board members or something like that. And he was talking about how he's kind of frustrated with RevOps because it's technically just sales ops rebranded. Just a sales ops guy who's like, yeah, you know, I, I do RevOps now. And um, and so I was freaking out about it. I've been talking to to our in-house uh, acquisition guy for, ever since because my, my problem is basically how I'd like to answer this question is I think that people that work in operations should be should come out of the execution part. Like if you work in RevOps, you should have at least hooked up the phone and closed something once in your life. Or you should have been like at creating campaigns and running those and understanding how the impact of that changes like revenue streams down or the, the changes pipeline at least once, right? So you need to understand the life of somebody who for who you build the processes. That's basically the outcome. But where it gets confusing here is that um, in my opinion, you know, someone like who has a finance background, for example, it got into RevOps, probably has the best understanding of what they're actually doing, but the least understand or the least empathy for the people that he's doing it for or she's doing it for. Um, so, so I think that's it's it gets very tricky here. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think it kind of comes but, up from uh, where it comes from. Right, but David, you've just given the best argument for having diverse teams working on yes. problems together. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, and so the the. I'm been doing some st study around a concept called spiral dynamics, uh, which is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs on steroids. Mm -hmm. And essentially, as you move up the spiral, you go from survival to being tribal and belonging to having power and um, focusing on taking action uh -huh. and then order and structure, but then that becomes overly bureaucratic and constraining. And then someone comes along and says, well, let's make some money from all of this. But their tendency is to win at any cost. So a few win and many don't. And then the emphasis becomes on people and becoming more inclusive and all that kind of stuff, and then becoming more innovative and so on. And as you evolve or progress up the spiral, you bring with you the qualities that you had below, and you can look up. And you can understand one level up, but you'll struggle to see two levels up. So if you're at the power level, you'll see order and understand it. And wealth and wealth creation you'll get, but you won't quite understand how to do it. Yeah. But the idea of uh, worrying about your people, that's probably a stretch too far because mm. your emphasis is on something else. Yeah. Now, the challenge is to build really good teams where the strengths are encouraged, but you don't create the conditions where the negative side. So the power and energy side of things is brilliant when it first starts, because all of a sudden it goes from being stagnant and boring and stultified to being dynamic and lots of action. And it's exciting until it's not. And then they become dominant and overbearing and bullies. And so they then get replaced or get uh, constrained by having systems and processes. Yeah, that's brilliant for a while mm -hmm. until it becomes overly bureaucratic. And so what I'd really love to understand is how we can build these really diverse teams across the revenue operation of thinkers 
strategists and technicians, operators, doers, and coordinate them together, that's how you get really amazing solutions to problems. So, I mean, of course, I mean, 100%, yes, let's do that. Obviously, very difficult to do since we're in a, um, it's, since revenue operations is basically a space that's like what, like max, I would say, in, in EMEA, like two, three years old. And most people don't actually fully know where it is. Where I actually say, and I know we're like t- 10 minutes into this already in my bad markets, but let's, maybe let's already put down the definition of what I actually think revenue operations is. Yeah, let's the do thing, that. Oftentimes, we actually, actually realize that like halfway to conversation, we're actually talking about different things. Let's do that. Okay, so let's do that. All right, so I, I would I would say, okay, the one the one I wrote down for me at this point, and I like to I, like, I preach it is a it's an operational discipline. We'll focus on streamlining processes and data across commercial stack to unify administration and allow for insights and activation. What do you think about that? That's a pretty comprehensive definition. The revenue part is missing, but I hope that people understand that, like, out of that, out of doing that, you kind of, you know, you you monitor or and you control the revenue. Let's say monitor for first, because that's what's missing in the beginning. But obviously, at some point, you want to forecast and you want to start to go into predictions on that revenue. But if you do this, you can do that. That's kind of the, the idea I have for this. Interesting. Okay, so. Let's think about what that means then. Let's break it down into its constituent parts. Mm -hmm. So the revenue part, that's obvious. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But what are the different operational parts? Right. So that's where that's where I think it goes into, you know, you have sales ops, you have uh, marketing ops, you have customer success ops. And hopefully, if you're really lucky, uh, you have finance ops. And you can have all three of these things running in different silos across the company. And if you do RevOps well, these people should all kind of be hanging out and they should be meeting and they should be trying to integrate their processes and they should be trying to integrate the way that they view their processes or the observability of the system and which often is done through the tool stack, which is why tool stack is relevant. But let me just say right there, you know, we shouldn't get stuck on tool stack because that is for, 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 for all the RevOps managers out there, that's your biggest problem. You're stuck in the tooling. You're not doing strategy. You're barely doing tactics. Absolutely. And the the tools are meant to help. But the problem seems to be, because of the overemphasis on that, that they get in the way. Yeah, I think that's the the name. So what do we have to do at the planning stage to ensure that that doesn't happen? Who do we need to involve? What thinking do we need to go through? Okay, so again, here, I think there's there's two different, or there's there's two different ways of going on about this. I'm very clearly biased towards one, but it has a lot more to do with my personality than it might actually have to do with the success rate of doing it. So I personally, I love to just build and then fix while I notice the problems. So for me, like an implementation of a bigger tool is I just throw the whole thing in there and I say to my operatives, let's go, let's do this, let's use this thing. And then as they use it, they're like, David, this sucks and this sucks and we don't need this, but I really like that. And so I'm okay. I remove the stuff that sucks. I focus on the stuff that they like and I ramp it up. I would say that the start is very, very, very shifty. And it's like, it's up and down, up and down, up and down. But then the more the more um, behavioral data I gather from the users and the more I see the outcome that works for me as an administrator and it's doing me well, the more I can like start to like slow that down until it's very steady and it runs. Once it runs, you can scale it. The other version is, and that's some of my some of my colleagues are way better at this than me, is like a very comprehensive planning. So there's actually five or six different ways you can launch a product, launch um, a tool into uh, like into the stack. 
not from my head right now, but um, basically, yeah, there's, there's different ways of doing it. And one question you should always ask yourself is who does it affect as in who like gets positive or even negative impact from it? And then who uses it? Those are the two things. Most of the time, you're going to have some sort of executive stakeholder who's going to see the outcomes of this thing. And you're going to have the people that actually like are running down on the ground with it. And I would say that you 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 have to just be so close on these people to to make it run, to then give the executive the best possible insights through the tool. Again, I think a lot of the purchasing of this kind of technology seems to be we've got budget, we've seen our competition have it, so we need to get some too. Yeah. What I'm sort of screaming out for is more forward planning and thinking ahead in terms of real commercial leadership, creating a commercial architecture, understanding what you're trying to accomplish as a business and making sure that the RevOps function is focused on that job to be done, helping you to enable the commercial functions across the entire business. Because how often does a sales or marketing motion then create downstream friction that CS mm. has to pick up? And why are we not partnering with CS much earlier, because they're the ones who speak to customers for six to eight hours a day, unlike salespeople who speak to them for three minutes a day. <laughs> so your thoughts? Um, so I think customer success ops is probably the, 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 the one of the, the hardest versions of it, because it's extremely human. I think um, in sales, we're, we're still we're still fi fighting. Like, for example, I fight so often with, with sales managers like, hey, by the way, your funnel isn't linear. I know it hurts, but it's actually like this. You're not going to drop someone in the front and then shove them through this thing. And in the end, you're going to have an output. So sorry to burst the bubble there, but it, it, it does move. People go from one to another. People are, you know, you, you're selling to humans and they're not going to be like robots or like stages and just move through this. So I think we're already fighting an uphill battle here to go from like funnel to flywheel and think about think about where how often we run into funnel in almost every tool you have a funnel view uh, or a kanban view you know so this kind of stuff is, is still so deep in our minds when it comes to selling it it's like linear and you you go forward you go forward and then like you know don't get me started on like how these stages for these people for, for, for customers you're selling to don't at all reflect what the customer is going through and are entirely focused on what's the next step of the salesperson okay so like this aside customer success has it even rougher because they are, I would also say it's like, it's, re, like it's not relatively new, but it's still like, it's obviously, there's still very different best practices on it. It's even more focused on creating relationships. You know, we have like madman uh, John Draper going from yeah. like a key account management to today, you know, customer success reps that, that, that go out there and try to figure out like, is the impact that we promise these people actually there? And how do you do that if you if you don't have a good con uh, relationship to these people? So I think right. customer success ops is even more difficult and it's even more humane. And we're even further away from really nailing it across. I mean, I, I can tell, at least in Germany, I can say it on Berlin, from nailing it in terms of what is the ideal process and how do you iterate it to different um, companies, industries, verticals? Okay, let me throw out a major heresy, and let's see uh, how you how you deal with it. What if growth was not the primary objective? Wow, well, shiver somewhere. It's fine. Okay, then what would the objective be? Well, the last few decades, we've seen a lot of cheap money, low interest rates, and mm -hmm. so people have been looking for ways to invest, and so it's created bubbles, and we've now created the VC and private equity market, which has then created 
lots of non-businesses in effect, because in the old days, traders and merchants had to make a profit because if they didn't make a profit, they went out of business. And what if building a really strong, sustainable business and being willing to be slow about getting rich, but to do it the right way so that you look after your customers, you look after your people, you look after your partners, you look after your community. And instead of trying to go after just growth at any cost, in order to try and get these ludicrous multiples that have been proven there is no value in most of those businesses because they've lost 90% of it overnight. So what if we were really to focus on building just rock solid businesses that actually deserve to survive and were resilient instead of these uh, this house of cards? Okay, so I, I'm not sure if I'm a pessimist, but I, am, I have some pessimistic tendencies maybe. Cool. And, uh, you know, uh, I would say that if we would do, and I know that there's people who do do that and, you know, respect to some of these people, shout out to someone like Jordan Greaser. But uh, um, the truth though is, you know, and, and Marcus, we, we don't. It's, I not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not what the money looks for. The money looks to grow. Some, well, there's a lot of money out there that, that wants to be more. And where do we put it? I, I get it, but they've taken a right pacing, a lot of them. Certainly the retail in, uh, investors have. Anyone who was holding on to anything other than those very stable stocks has, t- has taken a proper pasting if they invested in tech. Uh, but a lot of people also got way richer from it. And a lot of people uh, got rich, very rich in the last, let's say, 20 years. But and the I'm market's sure- changed. It's changed dramatically. Now you don't have cheap money. The investors are now, you know, they've fled to profit four months ago when Sequoia um, and Y Combinator and uh, Tiger and all of those jumped out and said, you've got to make a profit now. But it's created a really weird situation because certainly in the tech space, almost no one in that space has ever made a profit. No leaders, no managers, and no salespeople. Marketing doesn't know how to make a profit either. (laughs) Yeah. And now that they have to make a profit. So- what if it wasn't all about growth? It was about time to value. It was about customer retention. It was about the, uh, you know, we focused on um, the spread of uh, purchases, you know, the range that customers buy from you, the share of wallet. These seem to be far more interesting metrics and more useful metrics than the number of dials, the number of demos, the number of emails oh. some poor saps had to pop up. If I had to build a business and I didn't take on VC money, yes, absolutely. That's how I would love to do that. I would, I would love to. I mean, but but then again, also think about what your competition is doing. Are they are they going to run like that? Are they going to run differently? Are they going to you know run you over because they don't work like that and they did take on VC money and they can now do some of the stuff that you don't have the liquidity to do? So that's always a problem. I think there's quite a few people that try to start a business like that that just got run over. And especially what I think what you can see is in certain sectors, right? The whole scooter situation, you know, there were there were there were businesses that were like, oh yeah, this, this is a really cool idea. Let's 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 run this up. Let's try to do as well. And they just got absolutely you know eaten by these businesses that just got a couple million put into them that run it over. The, the thing is, I mean, on, on the other side, Marcus, like, in my career, like as long as old as I am, I haven't seen it any other way. I only know this. This is all I've ever seen. But it's so interesting because companies that grow up in recession are often very resilient. Companies that grow mm-hmm. up at times are very fat and it's easy. Yeah. They're not resilient. And we're, see- we're definitely yeah. seeing that now. Yeah. And it's the same thing with generations. You know, the generations that went through the wars 
and the ones who lived after that, um, you know, they tended to be a lot tougher, more yeah. resilient, more conservative. And then you go through these cycles. I'm, I, I don't want to divert from the RevOps conversation too much. But it does seem that we need to start thinking at a more um, meta level even and start seeing all these moving parts. We see the global economy. We look at our competitive landscape. Uh, we look at the shifting appetites of buyers. And we start thinking, um, why is it our CRM is set up for our sales motion, not for the buyer's journey? Mm. Um, why is it the CRM, as soon as you put an opportunity in, asks you what the close date is, and it moves the emphasis from filling the pipeline to closing it, but very little in the middle, which is why there's so much um, that gets dropped and lost. I love the conversation because it's, you know, it's the kind of stuff that you, that you, uh, that you wish would go, would, would happen more or that you would want to see more. So, you know, it's like the whole, like, leave, the, cha leave the, the, the change in the world behind that you want to see or be the change in the world you want to see and, you know, will of fire, that kind of stuff. So, yes, I mean, if we could do that and if more people would do that, the tooling landscape would also adapt because suddenly we need to, like, monitor differently or we need to work differently. So our the way that we would build processes or go to market motions would change. Even the way that we cooperate with partners and uh, competitors could change in a major way. And well, you touched on something earlier, which I think is actually the key to unlocking this, which is that customers don't necessarily want to be a Microsoft house or an Oracle house. What they want is the best solution. And so best of breed, I think, is going to become more and more the case. And my take on this is that the market is going to shift. I think 30 to 40 percent of all sales jobs will disappear off the place of the earth, uh, face of the earth and never be replaced. Another 30 to 40 percent will move into partner channels and ecosystems, and those will really burgeon and explode. And you look at organizations like Atlassian, the moment they started putting them um, focusing on the channel, they started to hit the curve of the hockey stick very soon afterwards. Then they just exploded onto the scene. And you see this with many organizations. But now I think the market is moving. And what I'm really interested in is how RevOps will cope with that appetite shift where people are behaving much more like consumers in their purchase operation. And 80% of technology purchases now are done on a company credit card by a manager. So, I mean, one thing that we'll have to disagree before I go into all stuff where I do agree is I don't think, I mean, as much as I would like that, because I'm a fan of the best of breed um, stack, is that we're not going to go into that. So what we do see right now is big companies buying, like big, big solution outreach, for example, is a good uh, example, buys competitor or they buy a best of breed feature for something that they like. They put it into their, their own stack and say, hey, we are now one step closer to being the all-stop shop that you go to. And what the CFO likes even more about that one-stop shop policy is they only have one bill to pay. Best of breed is expensive. You do have, you, you have a lot of control now. You have a lot of control now. The way you pay for it is, you know, it's super expensive to have the best of breed tools for all the features that you need. It is much cheaper to go out, get a HubSpot and then ramp up as you need it. So that part, I, I would say, as much as I'd love to see it, I don't think we're going to see it, especially in times of recession. The other stuff, I would definitely agree to more. So you're not seeing customers saying, well, I want to work with my partner and then the partner bringing in the right solutions. Because remember, when we wrote Making Channel Sales Work, what we realized was that the smartest vendors 
when they approach partners, identify what that partner already sells a lot of and wants to sell more of, and then tries to find a way to align themselves with that. So if I sell a pound, uh, you know, one pound of HubSpot, then uh, I can uh, generate five or six dollars worth of uh, downstream systems integration and consultancy Mm -hmm. and advisory revenue. And so that's what makes it attractive as a partner. Yes. The 10%, who cares, or even 30% on a bit of software. It's nice, but that's not how I make my living. Yeah. So I'm really interested to see how ecosystems and RevOps are going to evolve together. So I think, so I think, I mean, just look at LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is a, is a good example of like what, what's to come, I think. Like the amount of uh, tech tools, sales tools that ran, that now run on LinkedIn entirely, the amount of data enrichment tools that run on LinkedIn entirely, the amount of those sequencing, even I, I recently saw an AI uh, enabled LinkedIn sequencer that uh, self-optimizes its messaging based on the A-B tested run. So this, you know, the, the tool, the, the, the technology that comes out of these platforms is incredible because it, it's where most of the sales is going to happen. And, uh, you know, I, I, I totally agree. We are going to go into way more into these kind of ecosystems. I think at some point we'll even probably have like AI selling to AI that make the best like possible deals based on these ecosystem and the data that is inside these ecosystems. So yes, definitely agree. That's absolutely where we're going. And also I think a lot of companies have seen crazy success with being able to build, I mean, think about how, how community, like digital communities this year blew up. It's incredible what, what yeah. the, 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 how much of a leap we did uh, all across Corona, even just this year in terms of digital community and selling and buying into them. I'm really interested in uh, your thoughts on that because I'm definitely seeing community mm. explode. And in fact, with our ecosystem, we've intentionally tried to partner with three existing communities who are our target market, but without any intention of trying to sell to them directly now, it's really about building the relationship, building the the reputation, and over time, creating consistent value so that you build intimacy. And we've created a couple of little tasters that are drawing people in, in ways that it would have taken me months of prospecting and dials and everything else. And one conversation results in meetings for half a dozen yes. of my partners. Now yes. that is spectacular. Wild, yeah. I think I think it's so actually um, super interesting topic, and I love this topic. So because at the beginning of this year, that was my goal. I told myself this year, David, you're gonna like sit in and in, in as many online communities as you can. RevOps co-host, hype cycle. I love hype cycle. All these little like Slack groups, uh, revenue ops leaders, Slack groups, uh, all this stuff, man. Like the, the amount of um, little community I set into is crazy. And what, what super cool conversation I had with my dad, actually, um, who's not into sales at all, actually a military guy, but he was telling me, you know, because I work so much in digital sales, he doesn't really understand too much of it. And he's always like, you know, word of mouth, David. That's how stuff used to get like sold in my my day. You know, I, I went up and talked to the guy and he said, wow, this guy builds great houses. Let's go over there and tell him how. Uh, how great he is at building houses. Yeah. That stuff is still true. It's just entirely digitalized at this point. Just the amount of power that you have, if you are basically like a thought leader on LinkedIn in a certain topic and you jump into one of these communities and everybody's like, whoa, you know, it's that guy. And then you start chatting with these people because you're so available. What is this? Like you're on a keyboard. I, I, it's it's one swipe on my, on, my, on my dashboard. I'm inside my Slack. I answer a message. I press enter. Boom. You're communicating with someone. So... Um, Basically, word of mouth as a referral channel inside of communities 
is absolutely, or has been absolutely blowing up and is incredibly successful at booking these meetings. It's just but not leveraged time. as well as it could be. But uh, David, the other thing is you got to look at the conversion rates. The conversion rate where you are referred by someone who is trusted by both mm. buyer and seller is anywhere up to about 63, 64 times higher than cold. Now, yeah. when what, what that started getting me to think about was what are the things that we're doing that we could stop doing, even if we are doing them and they're producing some results, how can we better use those resources? Because there are so many sales and marketing motions that have failure rates north of 97%. That has to warrant the question, is there a better way? And often there is. And if you applied the same sales motions and the same skills to a hot market that you do to a cold, and you focused your attention on trying to engage with people, um, you know, half a dozen people who are already connected with and influential to the key people that you want to engage with, surely that's a better use of your time and effort. So yes, but Marcus, you have to imagine this is like, like, like trying to teach that to, 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 to the people that are so used to like whipping their sales reps on activities into cold uh, accounts, you know, yeah. on, on pure is so difficult. I mean, I, I would say like, I, you know, as much as I want to be an operative, I, I, I am mostly a consultant in my current role. And in my current role, these conversations of trying to explain the, the basic philosophy of sales and the, the, the future of sales people is what I do. I would, I would say like, if I'm not busy building slides, that's kind of what I'm doing. As much as I would be love to be out there and building stuff in, you know, outreach Sinkari, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking here, you know, explaining people these kind of things. Because that's we're so behind. I had I had a, a, a RevOps guy a while ago, a really respect this guy, tell me that uh, he believes that EMEA, and we were specifically also talking about Germany, is eight years behind the states in terms of understanding sales. Mm -hmm. I can see that. That's you know that we're catching up eight years. Yes and no. I'm going to push back on that because I think what's happened is that sales has become a technical job, and as a result people are not producing the outcome that actually we hire them for. And I think whilst that we may be eight years behind in terms of the technology, what still remains true is that human beings buy from other human beings and they are driven to make decisions by emotion. And unless we as the seller start recognizing that we have to be much better on the human side of the sales process, we will continue to have very full pipelines of non-buyers and spend an awful lot of our time scrabbling around at the end of every quarter trying to chase revenue in order to make a, a, a notional valuation number. Yeah, definitely. But we're going to be struggling with that thing. That is going to be the struggle. We're going, we, we, have, to, really we have to go through shift. that. If you focus on the medium-term pipeline and you focus on really building deep and wide relationships within those trophy accounts that you want, the same amount of effort can go into a handful of accounts if you've done your thinking. But the problem is that salespeople don't do any fucking thinking. Okay, but great, because I mean, Marcus, great, right? That's great. That's a great opportunity for us, for RevOps, because yeah. that's what we should be doing, right? That's, yes. That should be the job. It should be yes. our job to show these salespeople that they don't have to think, but that we just give them that information right like away inside the system in which they live and breathe anyway, from which they can then just, they just have to execute on. 
And that, I mean, I think that's why so many, especially right now, you know, everybody wants to have an edge again. The edge is not going to be pouring your money into scaling up your, your operatives and your, your people. You have to not have it like an edge again through tech. And that's going to be for many organizations. Anyway, your edge is yeah. your edge is in fixing your middle management layer. It, it shouldn't be. It's a lot more complicated, it. I would say. Yeah, well, it, it is. But these are things we have to really think about because your managers are the people who touch seven to eight of your employees, whatever the department on average. Now, these people are wasting time on low-value management activity like supervising, reworking, acting as a bottleneck because they don't trust their people, because they haven't given trust, they haven't trained, and they don't spend anywhere near enough time coaching. Now, if we spent time enabling managers to recover that time, learning how to be operational coaches on the job, in the moment, at the point of need, then enablement could actually be the business function it should be, which is taking what the managers are learning from those conversations and the ride-alongs and listening to calls, and then feeding that back to enablement and say, how do we solve this problem? Because it's always about multiple moving parts. Yeah. Again, that's why revenue ops has to be away from the tool. Talk yeah. about the money. Get your yeah. seat at the table by talking about the money because that's what that level of management listens to. Even more importantly, it's what they report to their higher management. If you can crack that number and if you can crack how to scale that process and feed it to that management, you'll make them happy. You'll They will have to change their attitude towards some of these disciplines like RevOps, and then they can, you can, that's also kind of how you get your buy-in on that the decision-maker table from where you can then actually make actual impact for the people that you're trying to enable. Absolutely. So um, another time uh, when we have more time, I'll take you through my model on exactly how to do that. Looking, um, looking forward. It's, it's working in the real world. We're seeing it happen today. Uh, and you achieve the same kind of sales accomplishment, but you end up making a lot of profit. And you get to keep that money, which you can then spend, and you don't end up burning through your people. The, the thing for me is I just see so much waste. And what bothers me is that they, they, if the waste is done in the name of serving shareholder value when it does the absolute opposite. It damages shareholder value. Yeah. This whole conversation makes me think a lot about uh, one, one version, uh, Tony Holbein, who's kind of like my, you know, shout out to this guy because uh, Nordic rockstar of RevOps. But basically what he does, which I think is so great, is that he comes in from this very consultative style of selling. He's, he's a C-level himself. He only sells to C-levels. And he, he, he goes very much into the direction that you that you were just talking about. He, he, he kind of sits down, he consults his people on, you know, this is what you should be doing, this is what you should be doing, this is what you should be doing. And then you realize, and then they, during the conversation, they kind of realize, hey, you know, we're talking about stuff that happens on the operative level, which I, as an executive, I don't really know what's going on here. So I guess we have to find out he slowly unravels this, this black box of like what's actually going on in your, on your sales floor, not in terms of activities, because we know you're whooping that, but in terms of inputs and outputs in the system and what that means for you. And more importantly, he drives that back up, what that means for your money. Because he's, he's really big to forecasting and planning. And, and so, so and, and that, and that's, that's the, the middle management's job, right? To look, to sit here, look at their sales and be like, okay, I predict based on these numbers that this will be um, focused. And then they don't hit it. So many people don't hit it. And then what do we do if we don't hit it? We just change the number and lower it, which is the, like, this is the, you know, this is the, the worst thing that you can do from-, from We hire from thousands over a signed quota, and yes. then we fire them when times- yes. oh, we That's the worst, man. 
David, this is the, the thing that really fucks me off because these are what they're dealing with are human livelihoods. Yes. And, and that's irresponsible. I firmly believe whilst we don't, we're not going to change everyone, I think there are a tiny percentage out there, two or 3% who are going to be receptive to this message and will respond well to it. And the challenge, I think, is to attract those people because it takes only a small number of people to demonstrate a significant difference. And that's the light we want to shine in the market. I want to work with about six to eight companies uh, as I head towards my retirement over the next seven or eight years. And I want to help them become unicorns, but not in the old way. I want them to, I don't care if they don't hit a billion, but I do want them to be outrageously profitable and to be destination employers, the kind of place that people fight to join and where customers love to spend their money. And partners love to bring business. That's the kind of organization I want to create. And I fundamentally believe it can be done if you stop treating people like um, as an expendable um, uh, commodity and you think more deeply. And that's the bit that's missing because everyone's I mean, in this rush. Everyone's yeah. in this the manic how and lazy why thinking. And the first step, and we talked about this earlier, and I love this, I love that part of the conversation is stop thinking about your people as cost centers yeah. Start thinking about them as profit centers. You are, they are not they 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 are not costing you anything. You are investing into them to make something to to make an outcome that is more profitable for all the parties involved. Absolutely. On that note, let's wrap up now because we've come to time. And mm-hmm. um, tell me a little bit about Project A because it's an intriguing business model. Oh, it's, it's yeah. So um, very very cool business. Basically, the part that the USP of it uh, is that we are both an investment company, so a firm, yeah, which is basically the the, the investment arm side of the company, uh, mostly Series A, some some follow ups or, or, or seed, and then the other side of it is the operational arm. So you have to imagine we we have this whole we, we invest to a company, it looks great, looks very promising, amazing, have a strong founder team, you know, they're just kind of they're starting to get go to market. And then you have a team of operatives, 100, uh, 100 plus strong, that are like experts in very, very certain fields that then come and come aid the, the, the venture in, in solving their problems and growing faster and having sparring partners and having people that they can trust and having like just even like an, an arm to a shoulder to come to and be like, hey, man, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I need help. <laughs> um, and, you know, this really goes from uh, from sparring partners to, to really for really like a C-level in terms of how should you be leading your company to someone like me who like jumps in and is like, Hey, let's build like a very, very uh, streamlined um, tools, tool stack across your entire commercial model. So from very nerdy, very, very nerdy in, in like tiny details to, you know, very high up sea level um, consulting and life coaching and, and all that stuff. It's been been working for a year and it's an absolute, uh, it's absolutely amazing because you see so many different projects that are happening uh, all over Berlin, all over all over Europe, actually. I mean, I spent the summer traveling uh, to some very fun destinations and getting to meet incredible people, incredible founders, incredible operatives and helping them, uh, you know, grow faster. And let's, let's say, and, and I will say grow because it's still a job, Marcus. But uh, growth, I, growth isn't, I don't have a problem with growth, but the problem is when it's unconstrained growth at any cost. Yes. Um, and th- what that then d- necessitates is that you start having to compromise in all the wrong places. 
Because if you're growing faster than you can develop people, inevitably, you're either going to miss hire or you're going to uh, onboard people poorly and set them up to fail or perform suboptimally. Uh, if you're only focused on this quarter's target, you're not focused on the long term and you've got no incentives. You know, so we talked about metrics and leading and lagging and behavioral. Well, things like time to value for the customer, I think, is a more important metric than almost anything because that's what they paid for. That tells us that the customer is happy, which means that they're very unlikely to be a flight risk, which means that we can probably tap them up for referrals and expansion sales, which are something like 1,150% profitable instead of 18% profitable uh, for new business. Yeah, that's a lot of profit. The money you keep matters more than the money you make in a real business. Agreed. Maybe next time, Marcus, how about, how about you come on uh, over here and talk a little bit uh, to us about this kind of stuff? I'd love to. Absolutely. <laughs> When? <laughs> <laughs> let's let, let's uh, let's check some calendars. I'd love that too. We have like yeah. a weekly knowledge session. We do a lot of, lot of knowledge exchange here at the company. And uh, there's always uh, space for, for uh, externals to come in and teach us uh, some, of the, some of their I'd, ways. I'd love to do that. My wife would appreciate a weekend in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing, actually. We'll, we'll hang out. I'll show you some questions. We, we, shall, we shall go and uh, swallow a few steins. Um, okay, final question. Um, uh, what was your best mistake? My best mistake? Wow, I make so many mistakes, Marcus. <laughs> I'm an absolute expert at uh, yeah, yeah. falling on the ground and work. I think the best mistake I've... Damn, that's a good... That's a rough one. <laughs> Um, let's just go with, um, I failed so often in my academic journey. Uh, I'm, I, I, I have no, no degree, basically, uh, what we call an Ausbildung in Germany, which is like an apprenticeship. I failed so often during my, uh, my academic that, um, I really, really had to learn to, to do. I'm very, very bad at, 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 at learning. Like it, it takes me way longer than most people. But I got very good to, to doing stuff because of that. So I think it's not one mistake, but it's many mistakes that I've made that have led to that. Well, it's interesting. Often um, the, the mistake I think people make is they try and work on their weaknesses, not their strengths. Ooh, yeah. And your development areas are your strengths. So you can put me in a room, teach me about Excel for two weeks. I will still be terrible at it. You put me in a room, you teach me about uh, behavioral economics, you teach me about sales, marketing, communication micro expressions or anything else, I'll be teaching it within 24 hours and I'll be putting it into action as soon as humanly possible. And I grow and develop on that. Play to your strengths and find people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. That's the best lesson I learned for many, many years. Another one for people is, uh, and, and, and there a big shout out to Lucas, who taught me Azana. So basically you have to imagine this guy hammered Azana into my head for I would say two quarters or nearly three quarters. But nowadays, my entire life is on that tool because I'm so bad at organizing myself that, and, and there's no way that I can like outsource it for right now that I had to build a system that does this for me. And so every morning, like a, like a damn computer, I get up and I like, look at my design. Okay, what am I doing today? All right, I'll change the due date here. I'll change the prior here. I'll change the urgency here. All right, okay, I can know what I'm doing today. So that's your day sorted. Yeah, that's my day sorted. Excellent. David, how can people get hold of you? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, just David David Kubler with the, the, the cool German dots over the U. Otherwise, I'm soon launching my Substack. 
I, uh, a friend of mine's been bugging me about this for so long because I used to be on uh, another blog software and I actually really like blogging. I'm a huge forum fan. I do a lot of, write me if you do forum role play, specifically Star Wars or some other fiction stuff. I do a lot of that. Um, <laughs> and otherwise, you know, um, if you play Pokemon, if you play Yu-Gi-Oh, if you do anything uh, video game wise, you want to compete, Smash, uh, let me know. Excellent. David Cooper, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, and share. Do leave a review on your favorite podcast channel. And if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. If you want to be a guest, type Inquisitor guest in the subject line. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye. <laughs>